Good day. You are listening to the 82nd edition of Free City Radio. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Thanks for tuning in. On the program today, I will be featuring a conversation I'd, I had with Eva Yasevich, uh, who is a longtime uh, activist, uh, labor organizer today uh, in the UK, and also somebody who was deeply involved in organizing solidarity efforts in the context of the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. Eva was part of the International Solidarity Movement, which was a global network of activists around the world that um, went to occupied Palestine to participate in community-led campaigns of civil resistance and direct action against the Israeli state's occupation of Palestine. And after participating in a mission in Palestine, Eva went to Iraq and took time to develop uh, solidarity ties with the oil workers' unions in Basra, in the south of Iraq, where they were engaged in strikes to take action um, and to protest uh, moves by the Coalition Provisional Authority, which was the name of the occupation authority of the U.S. government, of course, in collaboration with the Labour government of Tony Blair in the United Kingdom. And they were pushing for the privatization of aspects of Iraq's oil industry. At the same time, independent labor unions were banned in Iraq. And these were two points of campaigns that the oil workers union and also the electricity workers union were involved in campaigning against. Um, So Eva was on the ground And I have been doing a series of interviews with people who are involved in efforts to try to build tangible links of solidarity between uh, unions uh, in Iraq and unions on the left globally during this time of the massive anti-war mobilizations that were happening around the world. And really the idea was to explore a, a, a bit about what this process looked like. I was doing a research paper about this at Concordia University And some of these interviews that I did, um, I'm sharing here on Free City Radio because I think it was a very interesting example of tangible solidarity where, you know, the slogans and the campaigning wasn't simply against a war in Iraq or sort of protesting the war theoretically. This was basically an example of tangible support and solidarity between social movements uh, within the UK, within the US and inside of Iraq. So I think this is a very important and interesting and important um, example of what international solidarity could look like. So here's my conversation with Eva. So my name's Eva, Eva Yashevich, and in 2003, I uh, got in touch with and met and started to support the Southern Oil Company Union Oil Workers in Basra. Um, This was a a very new trade union that had come about as soon as uh, the Ba'ath regime had fallen and there was a need to protect the oil fields from uh, burning and looting by the Ba'ath regime, but also from uh, privatization and takeover by uh, mainly US uh, oil company and, and oil service companies that were looking to um, access 
control over Iraq's oil reserves. And the way I got involved was I'd already been active in the international solidarity movement in Palestine in 2002 was the first time I went there. And in 2003, when the war was launched on Iraq, I actually went out to Palestine uh, initially because there was a sense that using the, the media's attention on Iraq, the Israeli state may escalate its uh, occupation, colonization, destruction in the West Bank and Gaza. So I went back with ISM and then after a few months, I felt like, well, I had friends who were out in Iraq and um, there were activists engaging in solidarity work there. And I had to leave uh, Palestine anyway um, because my my visa was up. So I thought I'll go to Iraq. I'll spend, you know, maybe a couple of months there, get involved with some solidarity activism there um, and then see if I can come back or um yeah, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. And I ended up staying in Iraq for nine months. And initially, the activism I was engaged with was along the same lines as, as what I was doing in Palestine, which was quite kind of sort of getting in the way of things, kind of, uh, you know, monitoring what um, Israeli soldiers were doing. But in this case, it was British and American soldiers. But actually, in Iraq, the context was so radically different to that of, you know, refugee camps and uh, you know, very kind of rural village and town settings, uh, you know, very small area, you know, with with not, you know, highly urbanised uh, cities and certainly no big industries that were being, uh, you know, looked at for takeover. And also, you know, just the entire context of Iraq as, you know, a place with like hundreds of thousands of uh, occupation soldiers from all over the world. So, I initially was in Baghdad for about like four months and then I heard about, as it was, I wanted to go to Basra anyway and investigate what British occupation soldiers were doing, um, violations of you know civilians' rights and also any kind of civil society organising that was going on because this is what I'd been really interested in in Baghdad and I was, you know, part of um, Voices in the Wilderness in, in Baghdad and, and then I'd been... Uh, I was like employed basically uh, on a stipend by Occupation Watch. Um, but but I kind of broke away from Occupation Watch because I was really interested in Basra and the fact that I'd heard there were oil strikes there um, against the occupation. That was kind of the headline, like, you know, oil workers fighting against occupation. I was like, that sounds amazing. This is so cool. This is, um, you know, where I feel, you know, power comes from, organised labour, uh, workers, working class I'm going to go to Basra and I did and I spent about four months down there and um yeah it it wasn't easy <laughs> none of the time was particularly easy because I mean none of this this kind of context is easy but all the more so being like a, a white 24 year old woman 25 year old woman <laughs> from Poland and and the UK so two occupying power nations uh, one, you know, the UK responsible for genocidal sanctions on Iraq, absolute destruction of, of infrastructure, colonialism, you know, dating back, you know, decades and decades. And um, and yeah, like Poland was the kind of new occupier on the block. 
that was responsible for a third, uh, well, a third of uh, Iraqi territory, more or less, and the entire multinational division occupation forces. It was about 22 uh, international uh, divisions or, in, yeah, international groups. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was it, you know, it took time to build trust. Um, and I think that I did with the union in the end. Um, Thank you so much um, for sharing all that. I guess, well, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, I mean, organized labor, like in the UK or in the US has for a long time been, well, it's complicated, but there's aspects of organized labor that have been supportive of, you know, uh, sort of a non-imperialist agenda. Um, now that's complicated. I realize that some labor unions have had a more um, pro-West approach in a lot of cases, but the left of labor, let's say, has been um, involved in solidarity efforts going back to the 80s in Central America, for example, um, in, in sending delegations to, to Nicaragua, to El Salvador. Uh, they played a role in highlighting the injustices of like Reagan policy, Thatcher mm -hmm. policy during the Cold War. With your work in Iraq, I felt like, at least here, during all the massive anti-war protests, there was a lot of conversation about the Iraqi people in general, mm -hmm. but there wasn't a lot of like tangible relationships, right? So I just mm -hmm. find that that decision you made with support from others, I'm sure, to actually develop relationships mm -hmm. with an Iraqi union was, I mean, amazing. But like, can you just talk about maybe why that was important and also how did labor respond when you like contacted like labor in the uk or in the us to try to get them to mobilize to defend workers yeah. within occupied iraq i think being on the ground in iraq was really really important for for making those connections and meeting people you know this was at a time where there was no facebook uh, there was no twitter um there was email and there was websites and there was and and there were people who were coming out of dictatorship and you know navigating an occupation where not everybody you know a lot of people didn't speak english obviously um or didn't have access to you know computer computers computer literacy etc it's like a lot of people coming out of a kind of prison really um literally a lot of people coming out of prison so being able to speak to people and being able to build relationships and communicate what was happening and, and signpost activists to to what was happening was really really important and um I had some Arabic I spoke Arabic so that really helped and you know I'd already spent time in Palestine that's how I'd learned it and that's how I was kind of a bit acquainted with um the Middle East and and also just being very explicit with people about what my purpose was in being in Iraq, which was solidarity, activism against my government, being there to, to support their resistance and their rebuilding. And, you know, really just being very open about anti-imperialism and, and also being clear that I wasn't part of like an NGO, I wasn't a journalist. Um, and it was really hard to explain, actually, like, what, what are you? <laughs> you know, people thought I worked for the UN or something. So yeah, when I was there, I was contacted through Occupation Watch 
I was contacted by US Labour Against War. They wanted me to organise, um, well, the, yeah, they wanted Occupation Watch to organise uh, a delegation, uh, a kind of itinerary for them and, and their delegation that was coming to Iraq. So I took that on and I did put it together and I made sure that they visited uh, both the Kurdish unions uh, from the north because there was the... Um, Ooh, what was it called? Something like the Federation of Workers' Councils uh, in Iraq. So they'd been organising in like textiles, in uh, brick factories, and, and mostly around Baghdad, but also in Kurdistan, um, Kurdish North. And also wanted them to meet the uh, Iraqi Federation of Trade Unions, which was organised by the Communist Party of Iraq. Uh, these, these, This was a union that had a presence as well um, and had been kind of authenticated and recognized by the occupation administration as I think the quote was you know the sole representatives of Iraqi labor um, and that was a part of actually one of Bremer's uh, decrees so bit bit fucking sus that isn't it like let's be honest <laughs> so um, but still you know there was they, they, they had a presence and they were active in Baghdad and also in Basra and to a much lesser degree and other parts of the country. And then there was the Iraqi Oil Workers Union and um, and also like the uh, Dockers Union uh, down in Umqasr. We didn't end up being able to go down and see them in the end. We just stayed in Baghdad and I think we went to Nasiriyah, if, I'm, if I remember correctly. Maybe I'm remembering incorrectly. But it was it was about five days with them and it was just really, really fascinating for, for them and for me also. And it was interesting that in, in some ways, this kind of interaction with Western activists who might be able to bring resources, who might be able to bring attention and might be able to bring relationships that are beneficial and protection potentially from former regime, uh, you know, people who are still occupying boss positions uh, likewise you know protection potentially from um, the collusion between the new Iraqi government and occupation forces in trying to stifle organized labor so you know there was a real attempt by I would say all the unions uh, all the new unions to kind of really make the most of these relationships and and something actually that really landed with the Iraqi um, Oil Workers Union was um, this guide that US law had put together about the different corporations that were coming to privatize Iraqi resources, control you know, the Iraqi economy and their history and their connections to the Iraqi state. And also, uh, sorry, the, the US government and um, you know, key figures in the US government like Dick Cheney and his role in um, co, well, I think it's Halliburton that helped to build Guantanamo, I and mean, this was like, you know, a bombshell. <laughs> this was probably one of the things that pissed them off the most, partly because there wasn't that much of an understanding of what privatization actually is. How does it work? What does it look like? Because for the last, you know, 30, 40 years, or, or you know, since anybody could remember, really, it was, an, it, it was a nationalized economy, you know, still capitalist and exploitative, but it was not really one made of, you know, foreign companies uh, actually, you know, casualizing the labor force or, um, yeah, make, making making private money out of, of public assets. So even though, you know, it was still 
high degrees of exploitation. There was still, and there was still like private businesses there. It wasn't the case, like it just, you know, all the key big uh, infrastructure industries were still state owned. So, um, you know, we did do some workshops on on that. I would not say I was necessarily an expert, but I did my I did my best to try and explain what it would look like. And um, and yeah, I guess like what they really needed down in in Basra was they they wanted to be recognised uh, by the by the employer, the state. I mean, they were recognised at a local level. They were seen as heroes, the workers, because they had defended the pipelines and 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 they and the refineries and um you know drilling stations they they defended it all from um bath regime they so just just to be yeah. clear on that point like the workers actually set up defense mechanisms during the looting after the u.s invasion they, yeah they, they did, set up yeah. councils okay um they just defended it i mean i don't know yeah i mean they they were already the really interesting thing was that there was already a level of intimacy between workers who were organizing trying to organize who who'd who'd had common experience of repression from the regime and that spanned you know different kind of political sects from the kind of shia ones to the communist ones um you know there was there was some kurdish uh folks down there as well but like yeah the um they had physically defended uh, the installations um but they were also totally indispensable as a workforce in terms of knowing how the whole thing ran to a degree I see, to a degree I see. like on a technical I mean, there was, level yeah and then there was also i think as i understand it the regime did keep a lot of stuff secret and did did know the power of iraqi oil workers in terms of you know they didn't want people they wouldn't want it to be known how the whole thing necessarily runs. But then again, if you've got, you know, massive of workers who can stop uh, or, you know, in, in interrupt production, you don't necessarily need that high level of technical skills. But I do remember them saying that, like, a lot of the most skilled labour was, um, yeah, kept under quite a tight control and surveillance. That's not to say that the people carrying out that work were all, you know, bath enthusiasts. Uh, in fact, there was so much uh, dissent against the bath regime in like in 94, I think, uh, when the Intifada had spread through about, oh, I can never remember, something like nine governor, governorates out of 13 or something. It was massive. It, it really spread throughout the whole of Iraq. I mean, it wasn't 94, actually. I think it was 91. But you know, mm -hmm. no one has forgotten that the U.S. Air Force supported, uh, enabled um, the Ba'ath regime to bombard those those uprisings and those protests. Basra being one place, Kurdistan another. People remember. Um, so something that that was really needed, really, for the new union, because it was kind of like a company union in the sense that. The bosses of the Southern Oil Company recognised that they needed a partnership agreement with with the union. They needed the workers on side. They recognised that they could, you know, cause havoc with uh, the supply of oil, and they didn't want that. And likewise, the workers didn't really want that either, because about ninety percent of uh, Iraq's revenue was coming from oil production, oil sales. 
So, yeah, what they really wanted was protection. They wanted the government to recognise them. Locally, they were recognised by the by the local employer. The uh, Ba'ath dictatorship did not recognise public sector unions. Um, and those aspects of Iraqi law were actually recycled by um, Bremer's administration, the US occupation administration, and written into law so that, again, unions weren't recognised. And then the successive Iraqi governments also didn't recognise um, state sector trade unions. And in fact, you know, they even arrested, you know, Hassan Juma was arrested and got on trial um, for dissent I'm not even sure the exact charge but like you know fermenting dissent against the state something like that um but yeah the union the union really grew um in terms of building relationships with the Kurdish independent uh unions in the oil sector I think they tried with Baghdad but I'm not so I think it was a bit harder there but all across the south you know it's like the southern oil company union the the you know pipeline union, the refinery union, and it and it became the Iraqi Federation of Oil Unions. After a few a few years, I think it was two or three years, it didn't take that long for them to build uh, this federation, which was independent. And they had considered joining the Iraqi Federation of Trade Unions, but they decided against it because I think in large part they they weren't in agreement with the the position, the Communist Party's position in supporting. Uh, the occupation, basically. And, yeah. Mm -hmm. so, but what they wanted was, like, technical, a lot of technical skills in terms of organising. How do you organise a trade union? How do you make it democratic? How do you make it representative? Um, and um, I didn't actually have those skills at that point. Um, but they also really wanted relationships with international organisations that could support them, that could um, teach them these skills, uh, give them resources. And just... Um, really um, authenticate them on an international level because they had that base and that um, sort of legitimacy from their own members and at a local level. Um, but, you know, they're up against the Iraqi state and the occupation and you know, international capital, um, oil capital that was pushing hard, you know, um, to privatise. And actually, it was the work of uh, a brilliant little um, think tank stroke arts organisation called Platform in London, um, and particularly the work of Greg Muttet, who was an oil analyst and activist, who, who wrote a report called Crude Designs, again translated into Arabic, which really broke down uh, in detail what international oil companies were looking for in terms of accessing Iraq's oil reserves, you know, the, some of the most cheapest to access low-hanging fruit, uh, you know, in the in the sector, when you consider the, the tar sands were being mined and it was something like $60 a barrel extraction costs, crazy money. Whereas down in um, Iraq, it was about a dollar of 50 barrel, a barrel extraction costs. So, you know, and they were seeking these particular contracts, production sharing agreements, which no one had ever heard of. I'd never heard of it. Total industry jargon. But, you know, a few years later, you had... Uh, protesters oil workers holding up placards in uh, Basra saying no PSA and um, a lot of the technocrats from the oil, from the oil industry they're also um, you know working for the Ministry of Oil um, wanted to see the oil industry develop and wanted to wanted it to actually remain in public hands and be 
um, you know, saw it as like common heritage of Iraqi people. So they weren't even really aware what a PSA was. So this, this report and this work was really important in building advocacy um, within the Iraqi state, within the, the, the oil ministry of oil with, amongst technocrats, the base of, of workers, and then ultimately even, you know, MPs, decision makers, you know, Sistani, who's a big Shia cleric, perhaps not an Ayatollah, I think that's more Iran, but he, um, I think he issued a fatwa against uh, PSAs, pretty rad. And um, yeah, it wasn't, a, they weren't able to, to put this into law, you know, that was part of the Iraqi oil law that, that actually just couldn't get voted on. And it, it didn't pass for about 10, 10 years or something. It took ages. You talked about like Iraqi protests against um, sharing agreements with international oil companies. Could, yeah, could you the just, yeah. Sorry, sorry, I'm just wondering if you could talk a bit about the particular actions that oil workers took in protesting potential um, privatization and wh why that was important. And anything you know about, I mean, not all of them, but just a general picture. Yeah, I mean, there was there were lots of protests in the streets. Um, I think there was some, there may have been some stoppages as well. Um, I think that was more the um, attempt to introduce, I know that there were protests, direct action type protests against Indian oil workers being brought in by Caliburton to, to carry out maintenance work and uh, replace Iraqi workers, really. Um, and that was met with uh, quite a strong response from workers. And that was in the very early days. And they were just like, we're not having this. We're not having foreign workers come in and do our jobs. We're not being kicked out of our workplaces. But in terms of the PSAs, uh, a production sharing agreement basically is a form of privatisation, um, whereby the oil company owns, doesn't own the reserves, but owns the lease uh, to extract the reserves at the rate of extraction that it wants. So even though you can say the, the oil stay is uh, essentially Iraqi because it's a 35-year contract, essentially Iraq would have no say in how um, and how often and in what way the, the oil was extracted. So in terms of revenue, it would be up to the oil company, you know, how, how much that would come to or, or how, you know, what the volume would be. Um, I think it would also mean that Iraq would come out of OPEC in the sense that it would no longer be state owned and, and they wouldn't be able to, as a, as a nation state, club together with other states to uh, regulate the price of oil, really. So it's a big deal. It would lose, Iraq would lose sovereignty over a really key part of, um, of its income. And like, for my part, um, it wasn't that I want to see the expansion of the oil industry. Um, in fact, the opposite. It was two things, three things. Um, one, I saw this as, uh, you know, people power directly confronting one of the economic drivers and interests of uh, the occupation of Iraq and, and you know, imperialism with regards to Iraq. So by being able to deny that prize to invaders, 
that's a that's a blow to imperialism. That's really important. Um, secondly, you know, this was like working class civil society power. This is something that you know I could identify with. It was a form of resistance that you know was popular resistance, accessible resistance, um, and it meant that there was you know building of 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 social power and political power on the ground in Iraq that was beneficial for those people in terms of resisting state power and you know, capitalism um, in a sense, still capitalism, but, you know, if workers can control, uh, have more control over their own labor and over this resource, then the third aim can be realized, which is to actually have a just transition led by workers for, for workers, for, for labor, not capital, um, in terms of moving away from fossil fuels and towards a different form of energy. Um, and if oil companies control that, that resource or even you know, the, the state, um, then that's not gonna happen. We, we're not gonna see a contraction in that industry when we really need to, to avert climate change catastrophic climate change so by enabling that resource to be as much in as as much in the hands of workers as possible and, and as democratically controlled as possible there is a, a greater chance of that of them making the decision to say all right we want we want compensation we want just transition we want okay we'll move to solar or you know we we recognize that actually despite this being a really important resource for us you know, I don't know how it would work in the end, but in the hands of people, it's it's not in the hands of capital. So, yeah, I'm being a bit simplistic, perhaps, but those were my aims. Um, and and so, and and it was, I wouldn't say it was the oil workers' union aim to, you know, move away from their industry, because in the sense that would mean unemployment. Um, and what would that mean for the Iraqi economy when it's so dependent on oil? But actually, it would remain dependent on oil if there wasn't uh, control over that reserve, control over those resources and, and, you know, a different approach to economic diversification. And, you know, can the most powerful workers in the country leverage that agenda and leverage that shift? I would argue yes. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me. I mean, it's like such a big topic and I'm sure it's also very emotional for you to talk about that time. So I, I'm just acknowledging that also. Um, and so Thank you. <laughs> um, I know that that was a very intense period of organizing yeah. for you and others. So um, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to sort of try to break down some of your thoughts about why you're a part of that process um, and, and to sort of think about that now. Um, it's, it's, it's such an important example of international worker solidarity. So thank you. This was an exchange with Eva Yasevich, who is a longtime anti-war activist and union organizer currently based in the UK. Um, as you heard in our conversation, uh, this was looking at the solidarity efforts that took place in 2003 to build links of support between Iraqi oil workers um, and unions globally, but also the huge anti-war movement 
If we really want to sort of locate the historical significance of the anti-war protests at that time, they're some of the largest uh, coordinated protests in the last hundred years on earth. There was millions and millions of people that protested the Iraq war. And I did these interviews because I was interested in seeing the ways that that global network translated into tangible moments of solidarity and action uh, between uh, left organizing inside of Iraq and outside uh, in the UK and the US in terms of this support for Iraqi unions. Um, it should be noted that it wasn't until 2018 that independent trade unions were finally legalized in Iraq. They had been made illegal during the uh, Ba'ath government um, and under the dictatorship of Saddam Hussein. Um, that law was left in place until 2018. So from the 2003 invasion until 2018, independent unions weren't allowed. And overturning that was led by uh, the consistent campaigning of Iraqi um, labor unions and international allies. Um, so this is part of a series I worked on uh, about this subject for Free City Radio. Um, thank you so much for listening. Uh, Free City Radio has two new editions a week. And uh, I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. And thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, to go out on the program today, I'm going to play a piece of music by a friend and artist of the Iraqi diaspora. Um, this is Narsi. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. from home, I can feel the bombs close to heart like the death of a being gone. War made us feel like being free is wrong. Trying to be a man with a child's spirit song. Lullabies when a brother dies. No merit when a sister perish us, America. Drilling with loud toys, just a cowboy. Bullet riddle the Middle East for little peace. Giving in to the inner cheek, over to the feast like a winner. You pride oil and doubt joy. The same resource you drain came from remains of deceased corpses. All in plain view like Daniel Day Lewis I knew it, you giving off that kill me buzz There will be blood
So from, you know, the great Mark Twain once said that history does not repeat itself, but it rhymes. And I do see, right? And I do see some rhyming um, between Vietnam and Iraq, um, I have to say. The similarities are that we're talking about um, discretionary wars that are not of great intrinsic national security import right, to the United States. They're wars of choice, right? right? Um, that the United States cannot summon the political will and military, um, military strategy to win. And in both cases, the enemies know that their job is not to defeat the United States military to every last man. It's merely to prolong the war and break, Erosion, exactly, break the will of um, their oppressor.